Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Georgia House Minority Leader James Beverly is pushing for more law enforcement accountability. Now, when he spoke on the House floor Monday, Beverly recalled the deaths of George Floyd, Eric Garner, and most recently Tyree Nichols, citing all should have made it home. But they didn't. Their fate was in the hands of officers who pledged to provide safety and stability to our communities. Their culture ate this man's life for dinner. And Representative Beverly joins me in just a moment to talk through what type of legislation he's calling on for fellow lawmakers to consider. And later in the program, journalist and author Goldie Taylor talks about her new memoir, The Life You Save, The Love You Save, and how the words of other authors helped her recover from a traumatic past. That's later in the program, but we begin with this. The Memphis Police Chief C.J. Davis called the video of Tyree Nichols' death inhumane, and she says she was outraged by the actions of her department's officers. 29-year-old Nichols died three days later after a brutal beating from those five Memphis police officers who are now all charged with second-degree murder, among other charges. And also, three Memphis EMTs fired for their lack of response to the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols. Today, the Reverend Al Sharpton gives Nichols eulogy inside Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church in Memphis. While mourners will gather, he has said it will be a celebration of Nichols' life that will be the focus. And once again, another focus as nationwide calls for reforms within America's police departments, including how recruits are trained to more transparent and accountability provisions. As mentioned, Georgia House Minority Leader James Beverly, well, he's making a plea to his fellow lawmakers to do that, to craft some type of legislation. He joins me now. Representative Beverly, thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Rose. Thanks for having me. You said it was, quote, police culture that ended the lives of Tyree Nichols, George Floyd, Eric Garner, so many more. If listeners are saying, let's talk about this police culture, Representative Beverly, how do you now see police culture? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, um, the police culture is one where when there's a murder in particular, um, usually citizens are separated, right? Witnesses can't talk to each other. But in a police department, there's a there's sort of unspoken sort of rule that they can talk to each other before uh, before they go to the DA. And so internal affairs and have the ability to separate them mm-hmm. and then talk to them individually. And so you can have some, you know, some collaboration, corroboration, and you don't really understand what really actually happened. And so if we just treat police departments uh, after there's a homicide or murder or something that just doesn't look right, separate them like you separate the witnesses. And then we can start to triage what the really issue is and start to lean into a culture that sometimes, you know, serves and protects only themselves and not us. And so when you see another unarmed 
black man being brutalized. Um, there's a culture that, as I said the other day, that eats, you know, whatever strategy we have for lunch, because if we don't deal with the culture that allows for them to be held accountable, uh, then we are perpetuating violence amongst our community that we should ought to stop. And so that's part of the cultural breakup that we need to do. Can legislation be part of, you don't want to say changing, if you want to say changing this this police culture, which ultimately means a mindset, but there's so many other optics to that. How do you propose to, where do you begin? Yeah, I think one of the things, I mean, a practical thing we can do, I think some of our legislators have introduced a body cam, body cam for everyone in Georgia. Listen, you know, I think Georgia State Parole, I mean, uh, Georgia State Patrol does not have to wear body cams. There are agencies around the state of Georgia that don't need body, don't wear body cams. And so I think that one practical thing we can do is that, yeah, we can't change a man. As I said, Martin Luther King said, you can, I can't change you from lynching me, but I sure can stop you. Uh, for, um, I can't change you from uh, from not liking me, but I certainly can stop you from lynching me through the law. And certainly we can say to, to police officers, put a body cam on, leave it on. And if you don't, then there's some consequences to it. You and I both know that when it comes to mandates, if this was going to be a mandate, departments, maybe a department in an urban part of Georgia, perhaps they can handle that expense. Perhaps for a, another part of the state, they cannot. Are you also looking to make sure if you if you had something like this, there are resources in place. And this is just for now for cameras. We'll get to the other resources. But you would also need to make sure that these departments have what they need. Absolutely. Because, look, I'm, I'm in Macon, Georgia. Policing in Macon, Georgia, you know, though it's 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 pretty bad at times. It's not like Atlanta. It's certainly not like Millersville. It's not like Blue Ridge or Bainbridge. Uh, and so each one of those departments, we can get a fiscal note for, from around the state to see what these departments actually need to normalize uh, body cams. And so, yes, we need a fiscal note. And I would ask the governor for an appropriation for that. If we're talking about changing policing reforms, and we've been down this road before and, and during the Obama administration, you know, we had policing in the 21st century. Uh, under President Donald Trump, there seemingly there was nothing that, that was even uh, remotely close to trying to address that. How hopeful are you that with the Biden administration, there can be some national, not just conversation, Representative, because we've been having conversations for centuries now, uh, but some action on what policing reforms look like and should look like? Yeah, I'm excited. Listen, uh, uh, President Biden has done a lot of things in this particular space, especially on, you know, bail. Uh, um, so I, I'm excited about what what uh, uh, Biden is doing. We just have to translate what he's doing at the federal level to the state level and have some open conversations. And so what I want to do is encourage the new speaker, the new lieutenant governor and the governor to say, listen, let's let's figure this out and let's get the DAs involved. Let's get the IA involved. Let's get sheriff departments involved. Let's get urban communities and, and rural communities involved in a broader conversation about what does safe policing look like this day and age. Does it also mean, as I mentioned, coming into this segment, how young recruits before they even enter the academy? making sure they understand what it means to be an officer. Because an officer, once they get on the force, you know, and then they and they are, are supposedly equipped with everything that they need. But I've talked to officers and I've asked them, they say, you know, look, when I was a rookie, I, I didn't have what I needed right away. And that also means how do you train or equip someone to deal with de-escalations, confrontations, or stopping a fellow officer from doing something that is that's obviously against the code of the department. 
Yes, I think training, I mean, starting at the inception is where you got to begin. And so I think that also community policing, look, we, we've been through this. Yeah, I'm 54 years old. I grew up in 68. And so I've seen a whole transition of us go through what we go through. Community policing ain't what it used to be. And so, you know, now police are reacting to things. Whereas when I was coming up, Officer Friendly, we had to, we had commercials with Officer Friendly coming into I the know, school. I know, he came to your school and yeah. talked to you, yeah. Where's Officer Friendly, right? And so, uh, you know, and so what I'm looking at right now is how do we do community policing again and start at the, uh, the, young, the young guys who are coming in and really uh, involve a culture of Officer Friendly back again. I think we can get some traction on that. How do you get all those entities, everyone that you just mentioned, you know, when you talk about a state like Georgia, how do you begin to bring everybody together? And then also, how do you keep the politics out of it? The governor has a big bully pulpit and we have a big budget, right? I mean, we got a big old budget on us and and we got to figure out how to appropriate money to act best reflect what our, our value proposition is. If our value proposition is that we want to do real community policing, then we have to look at or what are the purse strings that are involved in that? And who are the people who will receive state money that need to be at the table to have this conversation? We can make that happen. It's just a matter of political will. You mentioned Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Obviously, you all listened to his State of the State address. I want to move to that for a moment, because are there some things that you like what the governor had to say, and then I want you to move into those areas which are still problematic for your party. Yeah, you know, I, I, there's some things I like, and I, you know, I am not one of those guys who's like, oh, it's a Republican and it's bad. I'm not that guy, um, but it's not practical. Um, the things that he's doing, like giving the teachers five thousand bucks, billion dollars. That's going to be a billion dollars. Property tax rollback, billion dollars. Gas tax, billion dollars. Right. So, so that's good stuff, but it's a one-time shot in the arm once. You still have $3.6 billion left over in an unaccounted for account. Where's the other $3.6 billion going to go? Look, if you just took that money right now, which sits in a bank unaccounted for right now, mm -hmm. and you just gave the interest on that money alone, just the interest on that money alone, it could, over, it could cover Medicaid expansion and Medicaid extension to people who are working 500,000 Georgians and not a mention of that by the government. And that's irresponsible. So it's $3 billion of unaccounted for funds. There's rounding errors that could supply health care to all Georgians. And this governor is absolutely silent. And he's talking about waivers that didn't work before, ain't going to work again. And it's just it's it's a tragedy. And so as much as I like the governor and part of the things that he does, bad budget, bad time, bad ideology. Can you stress that to the governor and, and those who are going to carry other measures on his behalf if you want some type of compromise between that and then the other legislative measures that you want to push now in terms of police and accountability? Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where the House is, uh, you know, predominantly Republican. The Senate is Republican. You got the lieutenant governor is Republican. Everybody's Republican up here. Um, it's not reflective of the state. And so we don't have a lot of, uh, you know, things that we can leverage. Uh, because it's, you know, majority plus one is democracy, best best form of government in the whole world. But at this particular point, we are undermanned and we don't have enough people to actually push an agenda. The things that we can push an agenda on where our votes count is absolutely we're going to leverage that. And we're going to leverage it, try to extend health care benefits to have a police conversation and to make sure that education takes care of folk from the cradle to career. And those are the things that we'll be pushing this year. 
There's some other measures that I just want to get your thoughts on before I let you go, because as you know, once again, here we go. We're talking about gambling. And again, this is one of those measures. If that's going to be pushed by your your fellow Republican lawmakers, do you feel like obviously they need you all to be part of this, especially if it's going to get to a constitutional amendment put on the ballot, but they're going to need you all. And so what can you as Democrats, you all as Democrats negotiate? What can y'all perhaps get out of this if, for example, gambling is something that they want? Yeah, that's a great question. Listen, I think the education is so extending health care benefits may be a non-starter with this governor. I have big hopes that the next governor of the state of Georgia is a Democrat, that the House flips over the next couple of years. And so we'll have another bite of that apple in a few short years. But one of the things that we can have a bite of the apple now is extending education. I would almost venture to say Hope 2.0. Mm-hmm. And say where, where when you're born, you have the opportunities to either go to career or go to college. And what are the things that we need to do to take care of pre-K? Uh, when you get out of high school, what do we have to do with that? What do you have to do with transportation? And those kind of things. And so we're thinking really seriously about how do you expand that, the continuum of education from cradle to career? And I think that's something that we would have to do and think about as we think about sports betting and casino gaming. Uh, first, the governor would have to sign off on something that's going to help us from an education standpoint. And then we'll see where we go from there. It wrapped up in that, does it mean also with the Hope Scholarship? Because it's merit-based. And many of us for years have said, you know, absolutely, this should be need-based. Amen, amen, and amen. Uh, You have to go back to the original hope, right? So I would think that you start there, basis of the conversation that we should be having across the state is let's go back to the original hope and then think about what we need to layer into the original hope merit base so that we can now take care of folk from cradle to career. So if you got to retool the workforce and they go back to technical college, what does that look like on a Hope 2.0? Mm-hmm. I call it Hope right? Hope 2.0. It may change. But the reality is, is that we still need to deal with the fact that merit-based need is absolutely essential for right now in this day and time. And finally, there are multiple bills aimed at district attorneys, making the DA elections nonpartisan, DAs reimbursing the state if the AG takes over a case and possible legislation with the oversight of district attorneys. And giving more to the GBI as well. Yeah, so it's a you know, power grab. Once once folk start to lose power, the first thing you're going to see, and I've learned this over the last several years, is let's go from Republican to nonpartisan, right? Mm-hmm. And so they want to hide, they want to, but it's the same philosophy. And so if you look at the philosophy of the power grab, you would see where it's going. And so I track the money up here, and I track when they start doing that stuff with nonpartisanship. It really is Republicans in, under a different uh, color, but they're still Republicans. How is the, the optimism meter for James Beverly this legislative session in terms of this, this bipartisan spirit? Yeah, so the bipartisan spirit, it is what it is, right? I mean, <laughs> the spirit is right, uh, the, but the participants ain't willing, man. They, they ain't willing on the other side. Democrats are always willing. But the reality is- And is the Republicans that, like, will my, say the same thing. you know. Yeah, I right? know they will, man. You know, they got beat it. Just look at, look at their caucus. Our caucus is the most diverse caucus in the United States of America, bar none. And I am so proud of my caucus. I mean, you got Palestinian, Pakistani, right? You have five Nigerians, for God's sake. I mean, like, we have everybody. You have a Jewish person. Most, I mean, it is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And so that diversity that, that you know, I have an opportunity to lead makes me enthusiastic, makes me optimistic, because our better days are in front of us. You still podcast, the JB Files. Georgia House Minority Leader James Beverly. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. I know you're on a tight schedule. We appreciate you changing your schedule. Join us. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues in just a moment when veteran journalist and author Goldie Taylor joins me. But we break for this. Speaking before the Fulton County Commission, Fulton County Sheriff Patrick Labatt attempted to make his case for a new jail that could cost just under $2 billion. Now, talking about the current facility on Rice Street, Labatt says he inherited a mess. Despite investing more than a billion dollars over the past 10 years, the sheriff is calling for the facility, which he said is outdated and overcrowded because he said reportedly results in more than 500 fights, 114 stabbings and 11 fires in the past year. How much longer people will have to suffer being treated less than human? Uh, What we don't know is how many times I will have to text and call each of you about a, a power outage which then costs more money because we have additional resources that we have to call out to continue to serve uh, and keep the facility safe. Uh, What we don't know is how many more shanks we'll find. If you recall, uh, in my midterm and uh, the report we put since May of last year, we found 1,578 homemade knives and shanks. Just this week alone, we found 83 and 19 cell phones. Uh, What we don't know is how many more people will have to be stabbed. The Fulton County Sheriff's Office is proposing the Rice Street facility be expanded to 2 million square feet. That's four times the size of the current facility. It would have beds for 64,000 inmates and provide space for medical and mental health care, as well as career and educational support. Now, the Sheriff's Office suggests paying for this nearly $2 billion facility through bonds and public-private partnerships. And they warned the cost of not replacing the dilapidated jail could reach $18 million per month. Now, we'll have reactions to this news later tomorrow and Friday on Closer Look. In other news, the city of Atlanta has reached an agreement with DeKalb County to begin construction of a public safety training facility, as we hear from WABE's Shemaine Cruz. The construction permit issued by DeKalb County includes roughly 300 acres of trails, ball fields, and picnic areas for the public. The $90 million, 85-acre training facility itself would be built on property owned by the City of Atlanta in unincorporated DeKalb County. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens says the plan is intended to show the city's commitment to green space while meeting the need for a training facility for police and firefighters. This essentially is a huge park about the size of Atlanta's largest park and it will be a park that will have a training center on a modest footprint within it. Meanwhile, dozens of protesters gathered outside City Hall calling on Dickens to resign. The announcement comes as protests against the so-called Cop City have intensified following the fatal shooting of an environmental activist who authorities say shot a state trooper during a raid at the proposed site. Shemaine Cruz, WABE News. Governor Brian Kemp is emphasizing his pledge to make Georgia the electric mobility capital of America. At the state capitol, Kemp celebrated the first recent automaker to set roots in Georgia, Kia. And he said even more cars, many of them electric, will be rolling off assembly lines in the state soon. And we hear that from WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass. 
It's been over a dozen years since a plant north of Columbus started pumping out Kia Sorentos. Right now, Kia only makes gas-powered cars in Georgia. But Kia Georgia President Stuart Countess says that first plant helped set Georgia's growing EV industry in motion. The automotive industry is rapidly changing, with Georgia quickly becoming a center point of change. Kia's parent company, Hyundai, is opening up a massive plant near Savannah to make EVs. Electric truck maker Rivian is also setting up shop, and EV battery plants are either already open or in the works. Kemp sees these developments as key parts of his legacy, but there's active debate over who should get credit. Kemp has reeled in billions of new investment with the help of massive state tax incentives. Democrats point to new federal tax incentives for EV makers and buyers in the Inflation Reduction Act. Kemp and Hyundai have groused about federal tax credits only being available for consumers of American-made new cars. The EV makers and automakers were coming to Georgia before the last round of federal incentives. So I think us having a market-based approach here where we're putting our money into workforce and having a good business environment is working. So that's, you know, more the same for me on that regard. Lawmakers are also weighing what to do about regulations related to EV fees and charging stations. Kemp says he doesn't have a position on the various proposals right now. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Cherie Rostin will not replace her late husband and House Speaker David Rostin in the Georgia General Assembly. She was defeated in that special election runoff yesterday by fellow Republican Johnny Chastain. Now, he'll represent districts that include Fannin, Gilmer, and parts of Dawson County. Over in Barrow and Jackson counties, Republicans Holt Persinger and Charlie Chase advanced to a February 28th runoff for the 119th House District. Now, two Southwest Georgia vacancies were also filled Tuesday by Republicans. Now, I want everybody listening to brace yourself. We all ready? Hit it, Kevin. All these You've heard of breaking the internet? Well, it looks like Beyonce did it today. The superstar announced the dates for her Renaissance tour. And yes, she's coming to Atlanta in August. As someone tweeted, and I chuckled, Beyonce, can you please wait until we get our taxes? Please. This is Closer Look. Back in a moment. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Earlier in the day, I tweeted, often when writing a review, if I was writing a review of my next guest book, The Love You Save, the first line would be this, often the hardest story to tell is your own. And Goldie Taylor's journey is beautifully written and a potent testament to perseverance and healing. And I meant every word of it. And memoirs take readers through the author's life, the ups and downs and life in between. And as Goldie Taylor will tell you, perhaps it's not always easy to get started. She is an award-winning veteran journalist, author, and political analyst. She's been on every credible, credible news outlet that I can think of and currently on a book tour for The Love You Save. 
Goldie Taylor will be in Atlanta tomorrow at the Atlanta History Center and in conversation with another good friend and award-winning journalist, Brenda Wood. But before then, guess what? We've got her. Goldie Taylor, stopping here on Closer Look. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose, it is always, always good to be with you. Let me tell you something. As someone born and raised in St. Louis, there were so many descriptions that took me back to my childhood. You mentioned the Zenith TV, Schnooks, and National Grocery Stores, Eddie Randall and Sons. I grew up off Natural Bridge and Marcus. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) My godfather's gas station was right at... uh, Goodfellow at, I'm sorry, at uh, Natural Bridge and Goodfellow. It was the old Sinclair Station. Absolutely. And I, I have a feeling we might have played in some some spirited kickball neighborhood gangs, uh, you know. <laughs> I've got a feeling that at least our high schools played one another. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Listen, let's be, begin here because I mentioned memoirs are personal and they open up, I guess, this pathway f- But in talking to some folks who I've always admired their work, one being the late Valerie Boyd, who told me when you open up that pathway, it's it's a vulnerable. You're vulnerable and folks, you're letting them in. When did you decide to write The Love You Save? And did you have any concerns about this vulnerability that you had to work through in order to write this? You know, I came to growth as a journalist almost 30 years ago. But I decided from the very start that I was going to have skin in the game, that if I was going to talk about issues, I was going to speak about them from a perspective of knowing, from a perspective of having lived the life of the issue that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. That I didn't want to just simply talk about what I'd studied or, or what you know uh, the scientists said about it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to sort of give voice to the lived lives. And so you've seen me over the years talk on MSNBC or CNN or even here on the NPR uh, airwaves about our family's personal story. But there was one story that I hadn't told. Mm -hmm. I hadn't talked a lot about those middle grade years. I knew why, Um, you know, but I wanted to spend some time there, spend some time thinking about how I wanted to tell this story and who else it might impact. That was important to me. But more important than everything else, were the issues that this memoir surfaces. Mm-hmm. Poverty, casual violence, murky, you know, the the, uh, the proliferation of crack cocaine in the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about how it devastated communities, how it devastated families, and how it impacted me. So no moments of hesitation. Did you, because you can write something and not publish it. Sure. So no moments of, of hesitation. The initial essay was published in the Daily Beast in August of 2019. Once that essay was published, and once we had so many survivors to ring in by direct message, by text message, by email to say, this happened to me too. Mm -hmm. This happened to my sister or my mother has a story just like this. But they had not had the opportunity or the space to be witnesses for themselves. And so I decided that I'd write the book, one, to be my own witness, to tell myself what happened, but then to allow space, safe harbor for others to tell theirs. Only then when we recognize and see what they call the dirty laundry out in the street, Mm -hmm. we decide to do something about it. You start the reader about life, 
back and forth, East St. Louis and St. Louis. I don't want to give too much away. Sure. But you lose your father. He's murdered. So here's this, this grief, this traumatic experience for a very, very young person starting off. This starts off for you. Sure. And then, Godie, at the age of 11, you're raped. At 11. And, and would, yeah. no. one I'll start by saying, my father's murder occurred not far from where you lived. Mm -hmm. Murdered at the corner of Kasuth, uh over near Margareta, mm -hmm. behind Marcus. And so that entire neighborhood feel has a special place for me. Mm -hmm. But when I began to grow without him, without his impact on my life, without his covering his protection, I don't know what would have happened but to that boy who attacked me when I was 11 had my father lived. Mm -hmm. I cannot say what would have happened for his life. My father was not a kind man, and he took the safety of his children seriously. This book talks about what life was like missing your father. I had lots of stand-ins. My Uncle Ross was a terrific role model yeah. in my life. But I had this terrific stand-in that I just, I wouldn't give him back. There's something about our daddies, and you and I could talk a whole lot about that. Because you write, I want to switch now because I want to get to mom in a minute, but you write. It was if mother, it was just my mother tucked away the unple unpleasantness and moved on. I remember thinking, if not knowing that I was on my own, whatever fixing I needed was my wagon to pull. Your mother didn't want to deal with it. Or couldn't deal with it. I think couldn't is the word. Yeah. You know, my mother had her own trauma. She remembers the day she was attacked. She remembers the baby blue, powder blue jumpsuit she was wearing that day in the 1940s. And so if she's dealing with that, she's, as I say, doing her crying in the dark. Mm -hmm. Her husband had been murdered in 73. She's left on her own to raise these children. Mm -hmm. And so her job was to tuck it. Her job was to go to work every day, make sure the rent was paid and make sure that we were fed, that we were healthy, whole and safe. And she did everything she could to make certain that that would be the case. It wasn't always, she wasn't always successful just as I wasn't always successful as a mother of my own children. But when I tell you that my mother gave every ounce of her soul just to help us survive, cope and make it, it is heartbreaking to me today to watch other children, other goalies, not have the kinds of supports in place that I had. Go to you contemplated dying by suicide at a very young age. You know, suicide ideation is people sort of write it off. Mm -hmm. It's the college way out, they'd say. But what do you say to an 11 or 12 year old who has been attacked, who was not taken to a doctor. There was no psychologist or therapist. You know, there was no, you know, come baby, let me sit down and talk to you about what happened and why and, and how that should make you feel. So to feel so unsupported and so utterly alone, all you want to do is leave here. My mother was a gun owner back then my father had been murdered, and all I wanted in those moments was to be with him. Mm -hmm. Even 
even after I was able to compartmentalize and grow over time, even after I was able to do all of those things, the suicidal ideation didn't go away. The feeling of shame and embarrassment just really didn't go away. The voice you hear is journalist and author Goldie Taylor. We're talking about her new memoir, The Love You Save. I want to talk about the time you first encountered James Baldwin. Mm. You know, I had an eighth and ninth grade honors English teacher who handed me Nikki Giovanni. Mm -hmm. She handed me works by Dr. King, his speeches. She handed me Margaret Walker's For My People. Peggy Lewis LeCompte was her name. But there was this librarian sort of in the shadows in the dark. She was at the corner of 9th Street and State Mm -hmm. in East St. Louis. Mm -hmm. That library building isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. But they had few works. It was sparse. But she, too, gave me what she had. And she gave me copies and chapters of books that she'd had. And James Baldwin, native son, Mm -hmm. was the first. And then I found a copy of Go Tell It on the Mountain in my sister's closet. And when and I tell you that Baldwin, for the first time, I could see myself. Mm-hmm. I could see the condition in which we were living as a people. And I could begin to make sense of it all. That to be Negro in this country is to live in a constant state of rage. And when I tell you that I was angry, you could feel it wafting off my skin. And so James Baldwin gave me a place to place that anger. He gave me a way to funnel it into something better. And Baldwin wouldn't be the only literary icon. I mean, these were these folks become a inter inner beacon for you to help you find your path. Do you remember that first essay you wrote? <laughs> the very first essay that I wrote was I'm missing. Well, I need more Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And it was not an assignment. The first Baldwin essay was an assignment because I was caught reading Go Tell It on the Mountain in history class because I was bored. And Mrs. LeCompte, you know, they marched me up to the office to tell me, you know, we like that you read books, but there are rules here, child. And one of them is that you pay attention and take notes and do your Are you sure we're not related? Because I have a similar experience. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so we, and so there was this essay, and she said it better be perfect and come in tomorrow. But a few weeks later, I decided I wanted more of James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And I went looking for him in my library, like you'd look for Mark Twain or Walt Whitman, you know, like you would look for Hemingway. I looked for works about him. I wanted to know more about his life, more about his living, and more than what was in his novels. And he was missing from my library shelves. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to write about that write about why I couldn't see the reflections of what we now know as iconic writers, why they weren't available to me and mine. And so, Goldie, as you're writing, you're you're starting to write more. Do you notice a shift towards your own sense of self-worth then? Do you see oh, a absolutely. shift? Yeah. Absolutely, without a doubt. You know, Peggy Lewis LeCompte gave me my first speech for a speaking competition. And I think she chose it for me to this day. I'll get to ask her tonight at an event here in St. Louis. But the work was by uh, Charles Finn, The Mask We Wear. 
it was all about, you know, every human being, man, woman, and child walking around with some brokenness inside. And what we show up, what we show the world is what we want them to see. That speech gave me such a sense of connection, such a sense of, you know, I can own who I am and all of the experiences that I have so that when an older cousin begins to attack me Mm -hmm. in our house, I decide that I've had enough. I threatened to set him on fire. (laughs) And (laughs) I think after the first couple of times, he thought it was funny. But by the third time, when I started walking around with a bick in my pocket, Mm -hmm. he realized that I was serious about that, that I had a life worth saving and that I would burn it all down to make certain that I survived and that, that I felt like I had something to give to the world that was worthy mm-hmm. uh, of being here for. Had that happened a couple of years before, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to stop him. And now you are often called upon to offer insight into some of those very same observations as Baldwin and others. And recently... You know, you released Tyree Nichols killing as a result of a disease culture. And you you make this observation, and I want to quote it because I read it. To understand why five black police officers would bludgeon and stump an unarmed man whose alleged traffic infraction couldn't even be substantiated until he was clinging to threads of life, one must first understand what brought them to that corner, close quote. And I want you, I want to give you time to dissect that for our listeners? I think it's important to know one thing. The victim doesn't have to be perfect. And so I've seen a lot of of videos lately about the beautiful life that Tyree Nichols was living, his sense of individualism and uniqueness. But whether he were a stellar standout football player or a straight A student or, you know, or a bicycle, whatever he did in his life. Injustice is injustice, no matter who it touches and when it touches them in this life. Mm-hmm. And so this is the first thing I want to say about that. The second thing I want to say is our law enforcement officers, our people in authority and other uh, places are not immune to anti-blackness. They beat that boy because they thought they could. They beat him because they thought they could get away with it. And when it was over that night and they realized the damage that they'd done, they simply did what they do. They stood around to get their stories together. They started to think about their families, their tomorrows. Nobody was thinking about walking them 100 yards to go tell his mother what happened to him. And so we are up in arms when it's a white officer because we understand that kind of anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. This kind, at least for communities other than black folk, because we got it right away, it was difficult for them to reconcile how five black officers would carry the same level of anti-blackness as if they were white. And that is what I mean by the disease culture. Mm-hmm. The disease culture does not discriminate. It does not care who it touches. As we end... And with writing being therapeutic. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, look, publishing any type of written work, that, that especially a memoir, that takes some process. But I want to ask you, Goldie, has the love you say been part of a cathartic 
or healing process. You've talked about it, but and I don't know if folks ever get over trauma and grief. I've, I've had violence in my family. I've lost a brother and a sister in the last three years and a great uncle. I don't know if you ever get through that, but has this writing this memoir been that healing process that you finally needed? Even from that first essay from 20, you said 2019? The short answer is no. The short answer is you learn how to live with it. I met a woman this morning, she's 91 years old, named Inga, Inga Petrosis. Inga and her mother escaped the Holocaust. Hmm. She told a story this morning that there was a point when they were mid-escape and she and other pretty little girls were taken to a house where there were Nazi soldiers. And they assaulted these young girls under 15 repeatedly, treated them as things. And when she was finally rescued, she's now 91, living here in America, has had generations of children, one of whom is working in the White House today, grandchild in the White House. Inga is 91 years old, and she could still barely get the words out about what happened to her she was 12. And so knowing, hearing her story and knowing my own, I know that you never truly let it go. But you find a way to use it as fuel. And that's what it's been for me. And that's why I think my voice is, it reeks with such passion when I'm on the public stage. Because I just won't let it go. Shout out to Kings Highway and Natural Bridge. <laughs> King's Highway. I'm going to the Rice House today. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. And uh, I have Emo's Pizza on the way. Oh, my today. goodness. Get some Ted yeah. Drews. The yeah. Love You Save from veteran journalist and author Goldie Taylor. She'll be in Atlanta tomorrow at the History Center in conversation with Brenda Wood. Goldie, incredible conversation. I really, the book it meant a lot on a personal level. Thank you so much. Always, folks. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by LaShawn Hudson and Daniel Razel, Pat St. Clair. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. A reminder, let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, as y'all do, rose at wabe.org. And of course, if you missed any of today's program, it's online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And we have a podcast, so subscribe, pick it up wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. 
Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm-hmm. W-A-B-E. <laughs>